You're listening to Brave New Words, and we're back. Hello, I'm Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... Hi, I'm producer Al. I'm Ross O'Brien. And we're going to talk about books very shortly after these messages. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, there were still stories waiting to be told. Force Majeure is an actual play Star Wars podcast, following groups of emergent force sensitives trying to survive the worst the Outer Rim can throw at them. So if you like action, adventure, thrilling yarns and good tea, you might enjoy Force Majeure. Find us on Twitter at ForceMajeurePod or online at ForceMajeurePod.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Well, wasn't that a lovely jingle? Yes. Well, well yes, we're, so we're back. Uh, we are going to be doing a bunch of shows over 2020. Uh, this is the first show of the year. It is February the 1st. Yes. Uh, as we record this. As we record this. So we are a little bit tired, shall we say. We'll out of practice. <laughs> out of practice and all the rest of it. We have an interview coming up later on with the uh, lovely uh, Darren Charlton. And he will be talking about his uh, YA zombie apocalypse a novel and uh, teenage romance book called Wranglestorm. Oh, that sounds like there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Is a YA zombie apocalypse an apocalypse with young adult zombies, or something, or is it, or or is it an adult zombie apocalypse which is quite young? It's a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, right. from the point of view of a young man. Okay. Okay. So are the zombies young adults, or are they? I think the zombies old are zombies. adults, right? Yeah, but before you are a zombie, you you must be at some point in your in your human development timeline. That's a really good question. You could be an old and, adult zombie apocalypse. Mm. It, it's nice that we've gone off before we've even gone to the what's <gasps> coming up on the show. We've gone. Maybe off. maybe this is why zombies traditionally always shuffle. Maybe it was always really old adults that got made into zombies. Possibly. That's why Logan's Run things happen. Or if you're, because you're, when you're quite young, you can't move very well, so maybe they're very young zombies. But then they'd be crawling, and they're not. They shuffle. That's true. Yeah, that, that'd be pre-pubescent. Well, be pre lot more than that. Uh, zombie. Is this why we don't normally know who the uh, the one of the author is in advance? Yes. Uh. I'm reminded of the Fantastic Four and the thing from the Fantastic Four and the fact that he had two bar mitzvahs. Okay. Because. He had a bar mitzvah when he was Ben Grimm, and then he became the thing. Mm-hmm. And his rabbi had decided that because he was like physically a new person mm-hmm. and had been there for thirteen years, he was due enough a bar mitzvah. It's an entire issue. Maybe zombieism is a metaphor for our fear of aging. Does Spiderman get a second baptism then? I don't know. I'm not a theologian. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can be a born again Christian, can't you? So I mean, uh, does it count as if you're just bit by a spider? A regular okay, if anybody knows he's Spider Man, it's not. Full, ah, ben Grimm is actually a public identity. It's a full body transform as well. He's completely altered. We've gone like I haven't even got all onto the menu of what we're doing in the show. <laughs> yes, we're back. Yeah, we, we are back. This is what they came for. This is what they came for. 
So, uh, <laughs> at the end of the show, we'll be talking to Darren Charlton about his book. It was very lovely. Uh, at some point, I'm going to review Owen Acolfer's High Fire. Unless uh, we get there first. Uh, yeah, I'm going to give it a good try. Uh, before all of that, however, we are going to do some book news. He's what? Massively optimistic. Book news? Book so, news. Book is, news? How recently are we covering with book news? Right, so this is the book news up to February. Because um, there's quite a lot but of stuff. Start, but starting when? Because we've been gone for a little bit, and that would that would be a show. <laughs> Not everything okay. that's happened in the last. Uh, hopefully, you should expect about um, ten to thirteen, fourteen shows in this year. Is the plan? We're going to be coming out regularly because that's just how it works with the Starburst schedule. The Starburst guys spend most of their time putting together the magazine. Uh, I mean, I, to be fair, also, that's also how it works with our schedule. Yeah, no, that's how it works with our schedule as well. So don't expect a large number of shows. We will be doing a side project called The Culture Worm. We will be Ooh. giving you more details about The Culture Worm going forward. Watch uh, our Twitter feed, which is at Radio Bookworm. Uh, follow uh, any of the team, but you can follow me, Ed underscore Fortune, to find out more about The Culture Worm. And there's also a Twitter feed, which is um, at Culture Worm. So you can find all of that about that, but that's not Starburst Project, it's something else. Uh, it's just so we can do more ridiculous stuff. So after that very small plug, uh, we don't have a jingle for this, so book news. Book news? Um, I'm going to get on with the really sad bit, but it's kind of significant. Uh, Christopher Tolkien has passed away. He was 95. It's good innings. It's incredibly good innings. It's one of those ones where you're like, well, well at some point, yes, mm. he's going to pass away. And he'd already retired from public life some time ago, and then he then he stopped doing all of the stuff with his father's estate three or four years ago, which is why suddenly suddenly Amazon were like, "We're going to do a TV series with Lord of the Rings because the rights came up and were available." So, uh, dedicated his life to the work of his father, J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, he wrote some fantasy books, I think. Uh, Christopher organised and edited the Silmarillion, Unfinished Tales and various histories and novellas uh, from the Middle-earth canon. This is the thing I didn't realise until recently. Right, so, the the Lord of the Rings books, yeah. yeah, they're meant to be translations. Oh. Yes, I think I've recently read something of this Yeah, well. I feel like I've recently read that, yeah. As in, there are... Alternative names of the characters. Yeah. No, I read the whole. I read a whole thing about this, and it was a Mickey Take article. I think. No, it, it's relatively serious. But somebody had decided to retranslate the various things, and it was a completely different spin on it all. Yes. Is so, that was that a real thing or was that a Mickey yes, Take? That was a real, real thing. thing. Okay. So 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 Tolkien is literally translating. From a language that he made up into English, right. so all the names are different. So okay. the reason they have very Western-sounding names is because they're Western translations, which is a thing that translators did back then. But th- this is translation as an art is really interesting because you have to make those choices as the translator as to what accommodations you are going to make to the language and cultural understanding of the. Uh, peoples you are translating primarily for so that you can convey the essence and the meaning and sometimes like exact translations of the of the specific words don't work to get across what the meaning of the overall piece or paragraph or whatever is but he made it all up himself yes 
So saying that somebody else is translating it in a different way, it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. And there are MA degrees now in translation, and this is going to be a thing that gets talked about in all of them. Because it's really interesting. It's one of the things I love about the, the movie Tolkien. So the movie Tolkien got slammed because it wasn't a fantasy movie, which is obvious because it was a biography of Tolkien. Mm. Um, and I, I interviewed the, 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 the director and I saw the movie as well. And I was talking to uh, Dome, who directed the movie, and he just basically he wanted to tell a kind of the essence of Tolkien. And talking to various members of Tolkien society, I feel he caught that. I feel he caught the whole like friendship and fellowship and the whole obsession with language. Mm. And there's some brilliant scenes where he's talking about how words are formed and how words are built and all the rest of it. And it's ultimately a romance. I think the main reason the uh, the estate slammed it is because they didn't get any money out of it. Oh, okay. To, to, to be like, and much was made of like the estate have have said no about this movie, and it's like yes because it's a biography; they don't have to ask you, mm. so they didn't. And, and I think the movie's better for that. To be honest, I think it's better for the the lack of interference. But you know, there's a there's a bit where there's a young Christopher Totley in in the movie, and obviously the old Christopher Totley had no say on that casting. Yeah. But it, it's charming. If you can get a chance to, to see it, it's really, really good. Yeah, um, I, I really want to see that movie and I never caught it. I am terrible at catching movies. Like, genuinely. Well, he also, the the guy who directed that also directed uh, Tom of Finland, which is when we were in Finland, the, the, everything with Tom on it. Okay. We should probably talk about book news. I feel like we've already gone off track. Uh, I mean, I mean. That's very true. We're not off the I mean, I'm distracted. We're not trying hard enough, but we're not Okay, fair enough. Uh, I, I am distracted by now Tom of Finland, which is, yeah. if you've not experienced it, is essentially a bunch of very buff men in fetish gear. Uh, okay. uh, My brain's still on the translation thing. Because, uh, because translation is really interesting, because very often things go from originating language to English to different language, and there's a move to cut out the English, uh, and it's all about the colonisation of culture and what the steps things have to go to. So there's a play I saw last year, uh, Barbershop Chronicles, in which one of the characters is talking about the fact that they are writing, I think it's a Spanish Igbo dictionary. Okay. So that you can translate works directly from Igbo, which is one of the languages of Nigeria, to Spanish without having to go through English first. And the sort of differences that will make. Because English has become the lingua franca of the world. Hey! But it's a colonisation point. Yeah. It's like we always have to default to these guys who invaded us and we don't really want to do that anymore. We want to be able to talk directly to other cultures and audiences. I mean, the other thing that I found fascinating is um, The Expanse has come back to TV. Uh, and, of course, the Belters have their own Creole. They have their own language. And it's really easy to kind of adapt and create it in the way it's really it's been really patiently and cleverly done because what they've done is they've sat down and they've gone what are the cultures that are in space if you don't know the expanse read the books watch the tv series the belters are essentially the third class citizens of of the solar system at this point they're the they're all the people who fled on a diaspora from various places and they are essentially miners they do the hardest most dangerous jobs but they're their own culture and their own culture is made of a kind of um, grab bag of other bits and pieces so they have their own language and they have their own accent as well and to me it sounds very Afrikaans because it's supposed to be 
but it's also inspired by or of a real world linguistic kind of twist. Mm. But and ov- obviously, you can also get a job these days uh, translating Dothraki. <laughs> the, the, is that one of the ones that you can learn on Duolingo? There's, believe... there's a couple of space languages you can learn on Duolingo, isn't there? In fancy languages, they invented, you can learn Klingon. They invented um, Dothraki for the TV series. Yes, because George Orwell Martin is not it's not Joe Tolkien but it is specifically designed to work as a language and have its own Valerian as well mm. there's a whole thing in creating I feel languages. like Valerian is one that you can learn on Duolingo which is useful if you're trying to make magical items I find it's all about linguistic skill and thinking about how the building blocks of language and how they come together isn't it? is there a lot of demand for these, these positions of translating into and out of these languages well, the people who have the jobs are quite pleased to have them. Are they all teachers on Duolingo? Well, they're all linguists. Okay. And then what they've done is they've sold stuff to Duolingo and the like on a license. Okay. Uh, it's part of the deal, if you see what I mean. So they've invented these languages, and the idea is that by creating the language, you can thus build a culture, because they wouldn't say it that way, therefore they wouldn't think that way, therefore it's like this. Okay, so you're sort of investigating a hypothetical cultures and brain state by what the language they would be using the, the writing writing a fantasy novel Tolkien style is mm-hmm. first invent a language okay which is not what everyone else does no I mean you, that's very it's, it's very it's very in depth world building isn't it uh, Diane Jones who, who studied <laughs> who studied under Tolkien in the sense that she kept turning up to his lectures and he really didn't want her to um, according to her biography was one of the people who, was, who, who looked at that and went that's um, really useful world building and no but it, it's almost like using your one skill to do everything for you isn't it it's like that, that, the whole D&D thing where you have I have one skill I have diplomacy at 20 I will diplom everything including that lock I, I do like the way certain, sometimes you see a phrase read and you think hang on I don't recognise that phrase and then you realise that it's this culture's version of because, of course, they wouldn't have the original phrase. Because mm. I'm thinking at the minute of uh, a recent Order of the Stick comic where something was, you know, it's water under the bridge. But it's not water under the bridge, it's water over the tunnel because we're dwarves and we live underground. So yeah. we have a different phrase for it. Yeah, I've done the idioms module uh, on Duolingo French. Uh, and, yeah, some of the direct translations of those words is not what the equivalent of the phrase is. No, there's, there's at a At all, of... at all, like, nowhere near. Mm. Talking of, talking of bridges, I'm having a lovely bit of coffee from my Benaranovich lie sleeping mug that Golan sent me. They also Ooh. sent me some uh, vodka as well. Isn't it gin? Is it vodka or is it's it gin? vodka. Oh. Which is weird because it, it, it's wine in the book. But they've sent us vodka and they've also sent us a shot glass. We're not doing either of those because we've got a show to do. Um, there is a new Benaranovich book coming out. We will be interviewing... Benaranovich in a future show and we'll be talking about that book as well mm-hmm. in a future show uh, so we're looking forward to talking to Ben but not at this show and that's me desperately crawling back to book news book news book news book news um, so Guff has opened oh it's a bit that? of a fight this year so so Guff is the get up and over fan fund known as Guff which is right so ba- well there's it's two versions depending on which way things are happening so there's these things called fan funds. And the fan funds are things that you use to get to world cons if you haven't got any money. Okay. So there's, 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 there's two types. There's a, actually quite a few little charities that will try and get you to events. Yeah. And back in the 50s and 60s when no one had any money, it was a, like a proper kind of rattle the tin mm. 
thing where it's like the entire British community cannot get over the states to go to Worldcon, but will nominate one person who represent us as a kind of special guest. Yeah, and that's TAF, which is the Transatlantic Fan Fund. And then because it's a because it's a globe and it's a Worldcon. There's various, so there's there's Taff and Guff. And, and Duff. And Guff and Duff are kind of similar-ish, but a bit different, but I'm not entirely sure what the differences are. Duff is down under fan fund, Guff is going under fan fund, or, get, or, it's, going, it's or, getting, or getting up fan fund, depending on which year it is. Okay. It's Australians to everywhere else in the world, or New Zealanders to everywhere else yeah. in the world, whereas, whereas Guff is the, the other way around, right. I think. So it's one of one of the other. It's yeah. So, but this year it's golf because this year Worldcon is in, in New, New Zealand. Zealand, and we hope to be there. And we also hope to catch the uh, production of the Love the Rings show when we're there. If whether we respond to our emails, which may or may not happen. So, uh, I still yeah. like the idea that we think the Earth is one way up. It's interesting. Interesting. Point. That is a good point, actually. I feel like do. that is a, a separate show entirely. <laughs> That's the book. That's, that's culture worm. Actually, yeah, it is. It's, it's radio book window science or something. At which point oh, we need more science people. Um, so, but, so basically, there's a there's a whole bunch of people. Uh, I'm going to vote for um, Hisham and Friend. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, there's quite a lot of pairs this year, which is interesting. Yeah, uh, there's quite a lot of pairs. Quite a lot of people going to it. It's you can find out more about that on the allspanfunds.com if you care, uh, which you might not do because it's the Worldcon and Hugo Awards and it's only a little community and it's all the rest of it. It's yeah. only a fraction of the sort of stuff. And we will about. at some point in some way do a Twitter link thing to somewhere that you can find out more. I want to... That's vague, isn't it? It's a bit vague. If you follow Radio Bookworm or, or, or Starburst on Twitter, you'll find out, uh, out about it. Hugo nominations, by the way, are open. We are eligible for best fan cast because we are not because we're a fan cast essentially we're not a commercial enterprise even though we're associated with Starburst thank you Starburst for hosting us and letting us have all the fun I feel like I might be eligible for best fan writer I think you are yeah. because you've also done some videos that explain the yeah I've done quite a lot of writing last you've year done a lot of fan writing as well yes. you won a thing for that didn't you did I win a thing no, 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 she graduated at a university. <laughs> no, 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 there was an award that was given to lots and lots and lots of writers, but she was one of them. Oh, yes, um, that's that, that's something else. Okay. That, that's AO3. Ah, that's last year's Hugo's, yes. Here we go. We're a Hugo. We're a, a Hugo winning po- <laughs> podcast. Uh, no. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people in fandom who are really not happy about oh, that. Like, like right, really oh, not okay, happy about we that. Cut that bit, so, yeah. so tw- no, we're not going to cut that. I'm just going to explain it. 2018, none of you, none of you, none of you, gentle listeners, wrote fanfic about brave new words. Therefore, <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's not start that. <laughs> if you put fanfic on brave new words, please don't. By the way, uh, or, or do I mean uh, I'm not here to tell you what to do. Uh, I don't if, want other people you, to write my plot. If you had done so in 2018, then we would have and been... And posted it on AO3. And posted it on AO3, which is an archive of our own, then we would have been part of that whole thing. Which is what happened was... Is it best related fan work? Best related work. Best related work. Essentially, they nominated the people who created the fan archive, AO3. The reason this is really important, and I think we mentioned it before on the show, is because it's... The beating heart of writing is fan writing, and there's a lot of people who are like, "Oh, but you, you've not practiced world building. You've just gotten the art and the writing and the discipline." The discipline is ninety percent of writing. 
except subsequent to the win because a lot of people were like, oh my word, I won 0.00001% of a Hugo. Uh, some some people were very unhappy about this and the people's joy. And so I've tried to make out that, in fact, uh, what won was the coding behind the site, which had been radically overhauled in 2018 or some such. Absolutely retroactive, authoritarian, fun-squishing nonsense. If you want to wear a pin badge that says, I, 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 I won a tiny amount of a Hugo Award, feel free. Yeah. What they actually have an issue with is people using rockets on pins to celebrate that. And what that needs is their Mark Protection Committee to be adults and figure out where the actual breach is and talk to those people nicely like grown-ups and explain the situation rather than issuing boot-stamping statements that make them look like judgmental, insert rude word here, um... Yeah. And and slightly twisting AO3's arm up its back to force them to release a statement. Thousands of people w- use an archive of their own. If a fraction of them are wearing pins, that would actually probably more be more people wearing yeah. those pins than people who attend Worldcon in the first place. Yeah. If it was a specific pin, if they just turned around and said, okay, you can have the pin, but it needs to have red fins or it needs to be blue or, you know, here is a thing just to, to make it different from the pins from yeah, the, the historic pins. Yeah. Just, just do a do a thing just so, you know, just to respect the, 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 the decades of work that other people have done. You know, just, just as a thing, you know, because we're all friends here. Then that would have been fine. And then someone would be sitting at work wearing a badge and they'd go, what is that? And then they'd find out and then regret asking. That's happened to me. Because, you know, if the Hugos and Worldcon wants to make its audience bigger, it needs to embrace the new people who are very excited about the thing rather than telling them all exactly, telling them off like naughty school children as to exactly why they've dotted their I incorrectly. Talking about controversies and uh, treating people like naughty school children, attack helicopter story has stirred controversy. So, this is issue 160 of the award winning, uh, Hugo award winning fiction magazine Clark's World um, which is named after Neil Clark I always think because I see Clark's World I yes, always think of C but it's, it's Neil um, Neil Clark's World uh, which we don't call it uh, so there was a story published called I Sexually Identify as an Attack Helicopter written by an Isabel Fall, Fall. Um, now sexually identifying as an attack hel- helicopter is a transphobic meme that, that's an unambiguous statement it's a way of mocking people with, who are expressing gender identity. It's the same... Okay, I'm not certain if it's the same thing, but the idea with of uh, Flying Spaghetti Monster versus God. Uh, less kind. Okay. At least with Flying Spaghetti Monster, you're kind of... There's, there's a level of fun to it. The, mm. the, the helicopter thing is just being rude. Yeah. What that happened was Isabel Fall, which is uh, who is a trans woman mm. who did not have much of a public identity at the time, because that's a thing when you're transitioning. Yeah. They had written the short this short story, and the short story was using that as a story prompt to write a piece of dystopian uh, mm. military sci-fi. Yeah. And a lot of people put on their 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 big people pants, and overanalyzed it because fans are fans and what happened also this ha- this came out over Christmas mm. various oh, people were off has anything else to do no, uh, and Neil wasn't available for various personal reasons 
So it went, which is always a formula. This has always happened. This is a mm. formula for for Twitter nightmare. Is if you you know something that you don't think is controversial comes out, it suddenly is controversial, and because no one's available, it all gets out of hand. Mm. Um, I mean, I remember reading the story. I remember reading a number of trans people's opinions of the story and thinking there was not necessarily you know, universal agreement of this is a great story but it, it opened questions and it was in, and it was it was you know it was a it was it was you know trying to open a door of you know we can talk about this here is a you know you know discuss, discuss it let's let's you know see what happened i think it, um they also pulled it themselves uh they pulled it for a short period of time Oh, is it still back up again? Uh, it's it's going to be at some point. Uh, Clarkswell editor Neil Clark has temporarily withdrawn the story as we write this, uh, and has replaced it with a detailed explanation as to what's happened and the lessons they have learned. So, um, yes, so it was a bit of a mess. This is why I rely on fiction to understand other people's worldviews. People put bits of their brain on onto the page, and then I can read those bits of their brain and like understand other worldviews better. That's the point of reading. And in other news. Saudi Arabia plans to Worldcon bid. Now, this is interesting. Mm. Um, we are, as we have said, recording this show on the 1st of February. The point at which you had to have your paperwork in for the Worldcon bid was the 31st of January. Con Zealand run Worldcon site selection, and according to their website, it had to be on the 31st. They did not state a time. Um, I feel like we are now at the point where, because of the time of day we're recording this, where it is, for everybody in the world, now the 1st of February. Uh, but very early on the 2nd. Yeah, but, but yes, but uh, Con Zealand did not specify a cut-off time, which is interesting. Um, the official bid is Chicago 2022, who have responded to the most recent Spanish Inquisition at SMOFCON, which was held in December by saying that they were probably about to punt for um, one of the Hyatts in Chicago. However, the rules of Worldcon site selection bidding are that by the date stated, in this case the 31st, you have to have submitted bid paperwork, which includes a letter of support from your proposed venue. So, according to Jedicon's official Twitter feed... Um, on the 28th of January, they said, Hashtag JediCon is now an official 80th Worldcon bid for 2022. Mm. Join us at Con Zealand and vote for a bid on uh, 2022. May the 4th be with you. Interesting. The last time I checked, and I did check on either the 30th or the 31st, uh, they had not been added to the Wissafus, uh official Worldcon bid. Everything page. is run by fans. Everything is run by fans, that's very true. Uh, on the subject of fan funds, as a side, there's a new fan fund called the European Fan Fund. Oh, what's that about? It's a same sort of deal. It just gets the Europeans called. It's called the EFF. So uh, it's connected in some way. To, oh, it's connected to Eurocon as well. So there's a thing. Um, so it's for getting fans to Europe. Yes. Okay. I'm going to ask the the, the question. Uh, it's February first. Uh, does that count for people in the UK? Ooh. Well, we are physically connected. Oh, I'm in pain. Oh, oh. We're still physically connected to the European continent. 
By a tunnel. By a tunnel. Okay. <laughs> We're still physically connected. We can't change geography. We're still part of Europe, despite how many flags you wave and how much of an... I'm trying to avoid using the word bellend here. Why? But, um... <laughs> Perfectly cooked word. <laughs> but yes. Um, uh... But to return to the earlier point... Saudi Arabia plans world combat. If Saudi Arabia have filed their paperwork... Which it sounds like they have. Which it sounds like they have. And Chicago haven't. Now, <laughs> if you submit the paperwork after time, you can, you're still eligible to be voted for, but you have to. But the voters have to write it in. But this could all be about to get very interesting, because that Chicago bid has been waiting to be crowned for about the last four years. So the reason we care, by the way, partly is because... Right, so the reason we care, because Worldcon is an event that's attended by, at best, 10,000 people. And you're like, well, why do you care? It's like, well, because some of those 10,000 people are, are agents and publishers and writers and people who are the beating heart of the industry. And it's very much an industry thing. And if you... The point of Worldcon never was, but it is now, to be supporting world sci-fi and the point of sci-fi and the point of fantasy is it is a tool to open eyes and it's a tool to make people dream and imagine and try and be better people whatever way you think a better person is because that's up for debate but it's a way you know like all right thing it's about improvement it's about yourself um so that saudi arabia is bidding is amazing Mm. That Saudi Arabia was involved. Come to welcome to the party. We 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 have stupid folk songs based on sci-fi franchises. We have homebrew. We have stuff that you can actually drink. We, we... <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have. Stop looking at that bottle over there. <laughs> you know, you know, come to the come to the party. Uh, Bring bring whatever it is it you need to bring and join in and tell us your stories, tell us your ideas. I don't think they're going to win this bid, regardless of what shenanigans happen, for various reasons. Partially because Chicago is so is so uh, well placed, mostly because there are many people who have recently won the Hugo Awards who would not be allowed to go to Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, for for various reasons, you can look that up yourself. But essentially, yeah, if you're gay or a woman or transgender, not a great place. Not, not a great place. place to be. Uh, and it's a community that welcomes everyone. So yeah, but what I'm really hoping happens is that Saudi Arabia gets its own equivalent version of a national book like Celsius two three two. Or um, like the Ozcon, or and I hesitate to say it like Eastercon, which is very much a British convention and it's called Eastercon, so you really, uh, really not going to have one of those at like Saudi Arabia. But a national event that is dedicated to sci-fi literature that invites people from around the world that would be amazing. China have one. It's in Chengdu. It's been running for five years. When China tried its bid. In 2014, it sank without a trace because no one was going to vote for it, but it opened the doors. And then suddenly we got loads of translations coming through, we got loads of engagement with the community. So this sort of thing is important. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, 
could be very interesting depending on who has actually filed their paperwork. Also, and I'm just going to mention this in passing, there's um, an Israeli bid that's been planned for the last three years already, and they are intending for, what, 2030, I believe it is? So they, they should probably really be launching at Con Zealand. They might be launching at Con Zealand, Maybe. but we don't know. Have, have we finished the book news? I don't know. Is there more book news? I don't know. I mean, there is always more book news. Is there any more book news we're going to talk about? Well, we're half an hour into the show. So, so let's actually talk about some actual books. Yes. Ooh, exciting. It's that thing you've been waiting for. Oh, so I'm going to talk. The show. I'm going to talk about High Fire by Owen Colford. He is better known for um, well, he, he's better known for the Artemis Fowl books. Okay. Okay. Um, Artemis Fowl, by the way, is coming to Amazon Prime or Netflix. Sometime this this year, um, some streaming thing. Some streaming thing. It might be an actual movie. I can't remember. It's coming to to TV for those of you who can't be bothered to read. Uh, why are you listening to the big show anyway? But yes, um, the Artemis Files series has been translated. I talked to Owen at Dublin. He seemed godly enthusiastic um, and also slightly frustrated because there were various people involved in the production who wanted it to be something else because everyone's looking for the next Harry Potter. And the Artemis Fowl books are definitely not the next Harry Potter. They're the next Artemis Fowl books. Mm. So. Uh, I have opinions about that, but I feel like now would be too much of a tangent to discuss that. I don't, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's done... I'll say franchise, for want of a better word at the minute. He wrote the sixth uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book. Which is actually remarkably good and mm. doesn't get the love that it deserves. So we're now it's a trilogy in six parts? Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah, so I mean, I came across it during an argument with someone about what counted as canon. So, you know, ah, um, also a, a much, much longer discussion. Than yeah, time avoid that one for the moment. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm very fond of canon, providing that you load it and wear ear protection. Yeah, um, that, which is why that, Doctor Who's quite a canon show because it doesn't have a canon. It doesn't. No, um, that book's got like a snake, snake skin like. It's got a dragon. Oh, is it dragon skin? See, Hi- I feel that's harder to identify for the ordinary person on the street. High Fire is the story of Vern, um, someone who's chosen to spend their twilight years in the seclusion of the Louisiana Bay. And they drink vodka, they watch Netflix, and they reminisce about the good old days when they were the dragon High Fire, who basically ruled the world at one point back in the day. They were dragon. An actual dragon, Vern is a dragon. And they've retired. And they've retired. Okay. Uh, he's the sort of dragon that sets fire to things. He occasionally gets very drunk, looks at alligators, and goes, That's not going to work. Uh, <laughs> Get a decent steak out of it. Yeah, but he's looking to buy them lunch first, is what we're saying. Ah, um, okay. I. I I'm going to drop another Order of the Stick reference in here. I believe they did at one point have a new reference to Play Drake magazine. Play Drake magazine, yes. and Because uh, it was a young adult dragon they found. Mm. They found a young adult dragon and uh, there was a collection of magazines. Oh, I uh, like that. Tasteful, aren't we? I like that touch. So he's living in the Louisiana Bayou. He's at this point considering whether it's worth it, whether, you know, whether he's headed towards the end of his life. And he's like this old grizzled mentor type person enter a uh, chap called Everett Moreau whose nickname is Squib the reason he's called Squib is because he's always unlucky uh, he is hapless everything he tries to do is 
fails. He's quite foolish and basically an idiot. Um, there's also a local police officer who's actually a proper corrupt criminal son of a bitch, basically style guy who's trying to manipulate the community to his own advantage and to his own selfish needs. Uh, he fancies Squib's mom. Okay. So there's a whole thing where he keeps giving Squib a hard time so he can try and manipulate his mum sort of thing and wackiness ensues essentially Squibb's doing a deal that's about to go wrong it goes wrong, Vern happens to be there and normally in this situation he would just kill everyone but he's not feeling it that day and he adopts Squibb and the rest of the book is essentially a buddy movie it's a buddy novel about the old pissed off grouchy old man <laughs> and the young energetic guy who's just trying to get their even break and it, it, it's just this kind of it, you know we've seen this sort of story many times before you've got you know uh, the, the one that springs to mind is Al Pacino's Center for Women where you've got that kind of you know the, the army the army general guy who just wants to hit the end of his life and then the young guy comes along and kind of gives them more life and more energy but desperately needs some mentorship and that sort of thing. It's the same setup. Um there are some very, very silly bits in it. It's very weird. It's very messy. And I mean that's as in the writing is great. The story is messy because people are messy. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the situation is messy. So it's solid writing and it's firm writing. But you sometimes you sit there going Crikey, how did that get out of hand? And it's because everyone involves an idiot. Mm-hmm. Essentially, no one makes the right choice. Everything goes west, including the dragon, who is ancient. Um, Golfer has this really good kind of handle on youthful idiocy, which you, if you know the Art of His Father books, you'll be familiar with the kind of taking risks for no good reason. Uh, and there's a lot of kind of ageless grumpiness going on, and the badness is great. I just love the way that they talk to each other um, it's quite coarse in places, very coarse in places, people end up covered in all sorts of things, shall we put it that way Ooh. yeah um, Ooh. Yeah, yeah, it's quite coarse um, it's fun it's accessible, it's gross um, and I really enjoyed it and I think we should have more dragon buddy movies, I think we should have more <laughs> fantasy creatures in a kind of buddy buddy movie style situation. Um, I'm concerned about a character called Squib who's really unlucky because I would assume that they're going to die on like about page 13. I think that's kind of what they're trying to make you think. If you right. see what I mean. And the amount of times that he almost does, you just sit there going, yeah. Because it's it's got that sort of... It's, it's almost like it's not Breaking Bad with dragons, but right. it could be. Right. Would the dragon be running a meth lab out of his cave or something? Well, because he's not, obviously, because no. that's not what the spook is about. But no. that sounds flammable and dangerous. I mean, that'd Dra- be cool. Dragons that'd be a... already have a fire situation. Yeah, them. that's what I mean. I think I, I think dragons would be surprisingly safe around you know, certain substances. Why aren't they more dragon blacksmiths? I mean, I can guess why they're not you know, into narcotics an awful lot, probably, but... You don't want you don't want storm dragons. No. I mean, they they they'd release the flame, go oh pretty, and then it would go wrong. Mm. I feel like there's not many dragon blacksmiths because dragons 
don't really meddle in the affairs of man. That's true. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you've got clothes, you don't really need to make a sword. That is also true. Also, if you're a dragon and you're the right size, you'd just be waiting in a firebox in a train if you needed a job. Mm -hmm. Which is, as we know, how Wales runs its train service. Absolutely, yeah. According to that documentary we were watching, uh, Ivor the Engine. Ivor the Engine, yeah. yes. So. I mean, some some people might say that transport for Wales could learn from that. Some people. There's too many dragons on the unemployment line. <laughs> Oh, that that as well, which is a a, a different show, I think. Yeah. That problem's been hidden from society because you just don't see the reporting on the current perilous state of of the dragon culture. No, fantasy creatures, as a general rule, don't get covered by the BBC at all. Terrible. It's outrageous. And the Womble representation. High also mass. shocking. Uh, yeah. Right. So this isn't a book about dragon culture. This is one dragon in a a culture they formerly used to rule this is one dragon in the modern day okay. I feel like Louisiana is too warm for a dragon I feel like dragons naturally levitate towards colder cultures so he describes himself as having a passionate burning heart okay and the reason he doesn't it won't work with alligators is alligators are too cold for him <laughs> right, that's the I wouldn't work are you suggesting that whales is the natural habitat of dragons? yes okay just wanted to that Absolutely. I feel we should talk to our lovely author. <gasps> Darren Charlton, welcome to Brave New Words. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, tell us a bit about Wranglestone, please. Okay. Um, well, sort of 15 years before events in the book, uh, the surviving population of America has all been relocated into the national parks of America following a zombie apocalypse. Um, so, yeah, everybody lives inside the national parks, which have been built by the, the military to uh, escape in and have sanctuary from the dead. So in the book, Lake Wranglestone, which is a fictional national park, um, is safe. There are island homes uh, populated by tree houses and cabins and they're all in sort of uh, piney chambers and they go about their business in the summer months on their canoes, hunter, gatherer sort of lifestyle. The problem is in winter when uh, the lake freezes over and the dead can cross the ice. So that's kind of the original setup. Um, but there's Peter, the main character, who's a bit of a homebody. He's 15 on the brink of 16. Um, and he's never set foot on to the mainland before. Uh, but after making a mistake with a visitor at the top of the book, uh, he's confronted to join uh, Rancher Cooper, uh, a boy that he's always um, admired from afar, and he has to go out and herd the dead away from the shores before the winter months. Um, but as they take their journeys into a wider world, they realise that things about their own community and things about the wider world are not quite as they have been told. So where did the idea for this book come from? Well, <clears throat> I've spent a lot of time hiking and camping in the national parks. And I think right back sort of 10 years ago, they really were the sort of instigator between me even sort of starting um, writing at all. I think there was just something really overwhelming about just seeing the landscape and nature on that scale. So even though I had lots of intervening years kind of trying to find out what it is I wanted to write about and the kind of things that were going to be my stuff, I sort of, it took me a long time to sort of dovetail back to realising that 
those landscapes were sort of not just an inspiration, but also a bit of a muse as well. Um, and I think also some frustration um, with zombies and what was going on with them in, in, in fiction and also television. And I think my feeling always was that rather than sort of being a, a backdrop to a survival story, I sort of wanted to reposition them back in that sort of science fiction framework of Richard Matheson, who wrote I Am Legend, to just have it more be about them. And I think, you know, I think of all sort of types of monsters in fiction, zombies are not just a version of us, they are us, or they were us, and it's kind of, they're an existential nightmare. And I think I just really wanted to sort of touch base on that and kind of just really drag them back into being what the focus of the story was. Um, so I think, yeah, that was kind of the main inspiration. I think the first thing I had was this little photograph of this cabin on a rock in the middle of a lake. And I think at that time in my writing, I think I was just making lots of mistakes around um, exploring themes rather than telling stories with characters that people fall in love with, which I think is a common mistake that people make. And so I think when I met my new agent, Hannah Shepard, the challenge really was just there to sort of marry my perhaps proclivities to be a little bit more um, <laughs> thoughtful in my writing with just something that had a commercial appeal. And so it really just became a challenge, really, I think, in my writing to just think of something that was a lot more plot-driven, um, had a really good hook that would hopefully, from the copy of the book, um, be something that would draw people in, but then hopefully be able to do other things with it um, that were also part of my, you know, who I am. Tell us a little bit about the main character, Peter. Yeah, so Peter is, yeah, he's 15 and on the brink of 16 and he's, um, he's gay and he just loves uh, the idea of this boy that he's grown up with on the lake, Cooper. Um, they're polar opposites. And um, whereas I think Peter is a bit of a homebody, um, he likes to stay uh, by the treehouse on the island, is never set foot on the mainland. Cooper um, is just a lot more able and confident um, and has a, a horse called Snowball that uh, he keeps in the boathouse on the mainland and he is responsible for herding the dead away from the shores. And I think, I think there's just something really interesting about... I think in relationships between same-sex couples, I think apart from the attraction, there's also a lot about looking at somebody else's body. I think when, you know, two boys look at each other's bodies and you notice things about them that you don't have. And I think that's kind of also part of growing up and um, whether somebody's got a strong Adam's apple and that's a symbol of being really sort of masculine. So there's all of that kind of playoff as well and I really wanted to include that. And... So I think it's just, there was obviously a very obviously a conscious effort to write a love story that existed between two boys, but it was also a completely conscious effort that this was not going to be um, a coming out story or an issue-based novel. I think when I've sort of spoken about this elsewhere, that when I was growing up, there just wasn't anything like this in children's books. It's all about girls who like boys and boys who like girls, and then you just don't see your own experiences or your own thoughts mirrored back to you. Um, but what there has been 
in the past, not so much now, um, tends to be very much focused on um, wrestling with your sexuality and, and being troubled by it and having the world being troubled by you also. And I just didn't want to write that. I wanted to write an adventure story that really, to other readers, is my real hope, is that it's neither here nor there, that it's between two boys. Um, it just happens to be part of the story, but it isn't part of the plot. Um, and it, it doesn't become an issue as the story goes along, because in their world, there are, there are, there are bigger things to be worrying about. Um, but it became very important to me. I think, I think as I saw that the story was beginning to work and the relationships were working, I think I knew I had a chance to try and bring something um, relatively new. Um, in as much as writing for teenagers specifically and from the sort of trenches of that experience um, for a slightly younger readership to, to give them something like that. What's the biggest lesson you've learned uh, writing this book? Because this is your debut novel. What was yeah. the your biggest takeaway? What would you do differently? Ah, um, I think my biggest takeaway is that, you know, there are obviously there are themes and there are ideas that I really want to explore. And also, obviously, as a, a gay man, then I haven't. I've been given a lifeline to be able to get a story out there that, that might exist less in the world than other kinds of stories. But I think the real lesson I've learned with this is is just having enough other elements that are going to appeal to a wider readership. I think it's that thing of not wanting to be niche or not wanting to be too um, literary. And I think just I think my writing really started to just fall into place when I began to pay attention to the stuff that interests me like I love the out, the outdoors and, and nature and obviously um, everything to do with my own sexuality but I think also to just put that within a framework of the kind of things that I grew up loving you know I um, in terms of just adventures and genre and I, I love genre so I think to just sprinkle it with lots of elements of that so I think just being slightly more commercially minded was not wanting to let my other sensibilities go so i think it really was about trying to sort of marry it up um so i think in a way it, this book is feels i mean you know whether it does well out there i don't know but it feels like it's really helped me find my lane in terms of what my thing might be as a sort of hybrid of um of genre and the, the kind of characters that you might not expect to pop up in these kind of stories what's your next project well <clears throat> immediately i'm trying to finish off the the sequel to wranglestone so it was a two book deal and um the first book ends on a bit of a cliffhanger um, there's an introduction of new elements, obviously, in the second half of the book without giving anything away, and also characters that come in the last few pages to kind of hint at where it's really going to continue going forward. So although I wrote that without any knowledge that there would be a sequel or any knowledge at all that I was ever going to get published, I just wanted to leave that open because there are lots of things left to explore. So, but with the sequel... Yeah, it kind of carries on a month later from events at the end of the first book, and it seeks to conclude the this, this story that I've started. Um, but I think going back to what I was saying earlier, really important to me that it's about the dead. You know, why has this apocalypse happened? It's obviously devastated the planet, but perhaps 
it's also done some good. Um, and so just really wanting to explore, not just on a, an existential level, but just, yeah, on a just a thrilling level in terms of what they are, other than these these monsters that we want to rip the planet off. They're a version of us. And I really wanted to make sure that the plot doesn't lose sight of of them and, and, and being about them rather than a backdrop. So, so yeah, I'm just trying to bring a, a sequel sort of safely to Harbour. I'm just working towards the end of the first draft. And then after that, I, I, I don't know. I've got a few other ideas, but um, I need to get through this one first. The UK genre book scene is quite large and there's quite a lot of things going on this year. Um, mm. Will we see you at any of these, uh, any of the events? Is there any chance one could get one's book signed from you? I hope so. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, obviously it's the top of the year and the book is, is out technically uh, next week, which is the, the 6th of February, um, although it's been popping up in shops um, already this week. Um, Forbidden Planner really responded well to the book and have invited me to go and to do some signings, but that's not um, a public event. That's to sign some copies for them to distribute the um, branches across the country. But I think, yeah, we're at the beginning of finding out what invitations might come in. I'm available for the year. Um, I'd really, you know, this is now about being in touch with the readers and seeing how it's working. And so, yeah, I would be thrilled to just bid anything and so yes we'll just have to see what, what what things come along but um yeah i'm hoping it's going to pan out that way just some uh, silly questions just to finish off if you don't mind um, no go ahead slightly serious silly question if you could take one piece of art and have that survive pretty much forever until the sun goes out what would it be a piece of art, and by that do you mean music, music film, writing, or painting? Or... Anything. Art, films, movies, comic books, writing. Just one thing. <sighs> for me personally, or for the sake of everybody else? For, for you personally, or, you know, <laughs> it's, it's up to you. you. You get to pick. I would save Jerry Goldsmith's score to Star Trek The Motion Picture. Ooh, good call. Because I... I think John Williams is is beautiful, and we're still so lucky to have him. But I worry about the memory of Jerry Goldsmith getting lost, and he's my hero. And his music was obviously it was apart from being sort of wonderfully um, symphonic when he wanted to, it could be really avant garde and really unmelodic. And I think Star Trek: The Motion Picture is his masterpiece. I think it marries something more symphonic but with all of his sensibilities of just something really avant-garde it still sounds so strange and fresh it's my favorite film score i would salvage that very selfishly because i could honestly listen to that all the time and i would love for other people to be able to hear it too um, if there's any danger that we forget um what an absolute um master he absolutely was in film scoring and some daft questions to finish off. Uh, Simpsons or Futurama? Futurama? I love Futurama. <laughs> yes. Doctor Who? Futurama. Not mainly because of Nibbler and also because of Leela. Doctor Who or Doctor No? <sighs> Doctor No. Death Stars or Dragons? Death Stars. All day long. 
Macbeth or Othello? Macbeth. And finally, Truth or Beauty? Mm. You're breaking my heart with this one. Beauty. (laughs) Beauty. I'm denying truth. That's terrible. (laughs) Darren Charlton, thank you very much for your time. Ed, thank you so much for having me. I love Starburst. It's a real honour to have you um, uh, invite me along. That was um, that was really really nice. Um, cool. Um, it's it's nice to also know that there's zombie stories out there that aren't just you know the usual horror channel monsters eating monsters brains stuff. Yes. And uh, on that, I think we're going to say goodbye. I'm very excited about saying goodbye. Bye! Bye!